Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Margaret Oppenheimer talks about the Moorish Jumel Mansion in Washington Heights. Built in 1765 as a summer home for Roger Morris, a prominent colonial British military officer, realtor, and slave owner, the mansion originally sat on 135 acres of land stretching from the Harlem to the Hudson Rivers at the second highest point in Manhattan. It was later made famous as the temporary residence of General Washington during the American Revolution, and then for Aaron Burr, Alexander Hamilton's controversial killer, and Thomas Jefferson's first vice president. Here, Oppenheimer draws on her biography of Eliza Jumel, wife of Morris and Burr, and the mansion's most permanent tenant, for an intimate history of the home. For more podcasts like this and for more Gotham Center programming, visit us at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening. Imagine a visit to Washington Heights in the spring of 1880. Your elevated train clatters to a halt at the brand new 155th Street Station. As you look out from the platform, you see a landscape in transition. There are blocks of houses and some small apartment buildings in the middle of gardens, fields, and swaths of undeveloped land. In the distance, on a high bluff, is a grand white house. It has a towering portico on the front, supported by columns two stories high. Around it, there are fruit trees that a visitor said looked like so many great snowballs and smelled like bunches of violets. The home they ornamented was the building that we call the Morris Jumel Mansion today. At the time, it was already more than 100 years old. The house's story begins in 1765, when the land it sits on was purchased by Roger Morris and his wife, Mary Phillips Morris. Roger came from modest beginnings. His father was a builder who worked his way up to become an architect. This gave him the means to buy a commission in the British Army for his 17-year-old son. Ultimately, Roger was sent to America to fight in the French and Indian War. That turned out to be a stroke of good luck because he was stationed for a time in New York where he met an heiress. She was Mary Phillips, whose family had arrived in New York State in the 17th century. By 1750, they were among the state's largest landowners and, sad to say, among the largest slaveholders. Mary Phillips, as an heiress, was much courted, as you can imagine. In fact, a military man wrote a satirical description of 39 officers who were wooing her, including General Webb, wounded, Captain McAdam, desperate, Captain Delancey, not accepted, Mr. Gordon, made approaches, but at too great a distance, and Roger Morris, shot through the heart. The diagnosis was accurate when it came to Morris. He and Mary made a match, which seems to have resulted in a very happy marriage. They built the house we call the Morris Jumel Mansion as their summer home. Roger set down a brief description of it some years later. It was a large house built of wood lined with brick, four rooms on a floor, and eight or nine bedrooms besides garrets. But his one-line summary 
doesn't do the building full justice. The front half of the house is a rectangular block with a second floor balcony that looks out over the Harlem River. The back half of the structure has a more unusual shape. It's designed in the form of a two and a half story octagon with big windows that offer views in several directions. On top of the octagon, there is a roof deck and there used to be one on the front block of the house as well. From them, you could see east as far as the Long Island Sound and south more than 20 miles to the hills of Staten Island. Closer to home, there were orchards, farmland, and timber for fuel and fence posts. There were decorative touches too. A letter from Roger to Mary reveals their interest in attractive landscaping. I am surprised your gardener should be at a loss where to place a shrubbery. If we could go to the expense, that hill which leads down to the river would make a most delightful one. Apparently Mary had already started on another landscaping project, improving the carriage drive, for Roger wrote, You say, and I will not doubt your taste, the road to the house will be very ornamental when it is finished. He cautioned her, however, If you would have it like what is thought taste here, it must not be straight. The Morrises had five children between 1761 and 1770 who would have enjoyed with them the pleasant summer home. The country idol came to an end in 1775 with the outbreak of the American Revolution. Roger remained loyal to the British crown, and he traveled to England shortly after the outbreak of war. Mary stayed in New York to look after their properties. A letter Roger sent to her encapsulates the longing and loneliness of those separated by war. God Almighty grant that some fortunate circumstance will happen to bring about a suspension of hostilities. Pleasure I can have not until I am back with you. How much I miss you. Your repeated marks of tender love and esteem so daily occur to my mind that I am totally unhinged. In 1776, Roger and Mary's country home became a military encampment. For 34 days in September and October, it was headquarters for General George Washington as he tried desperately to keep New York in American hands. His first letters from the house were written on September 16, the day after his troops were routed at the Battle of Kipps Bay. We can hear his frustration and fury in a letter to John Hancock superscribed headquarters at Colonel Roger Morris's house. We are now encamped with the main body of the army on the heights of Harlem, where I should hope the enemy would meet with a defeat in case of an attack if the generality of our troops would behave with tolerable bravery. But experience to my extreme affliction has convinced me that this is rather to be wished for than expected. However, I trust that there are many who will act like men and show themselves worthy of the blessings of freedom. That very day, the Americans redeemed themselves at a skirmish on Harlem Plains, about two and a half miles south of Morris's house. There, they drove back the British. This affair, I am in hopes, will be attended with many salutary consequences, Washington wrote, as it seems to have greatly inspirited the whole of our troops. However, the disparity in numbers between the British and American forces was too great, and Washington was forced to retreat into New Jersey. 
Roger and Mary Morris's house became headquarters for a succession of British and then Hessian commanders. After the war, the house was seized and sold because it had belonged to a Tory. It passed from one owner to another over the next 25 years. In 1785 to 86, it even served briefly as a genteel house of entertainment, as it was termed by Talmadge Hall, the man who leased it. Parties from town and travelers, he announced, may be served with breakfast, dinners, suppers, relishes, tea, punch, etc., at ten minutes' notice. The octagon room is very happily calculated for a turtle party, and his guests shall have for desserts peaches, apricots, pears, gooseberries, nectarines, cherries, currants, and strawberries in their seasons. Finally, in 1810, the house obtained new owners who would occupy it long term. It was purchased by Stephen and Eliza Jumel. Like so many New Yorkers before and since, neither Stephen nor Eliza was native to the region. Instead, they arrived in New York in search of opportunity. Stephen, a merchant, came from southwest France at the time of the French Revolution. He built a highly successful business importing dry goods and wines and spirits from Europe. We can hear his voice in a letter he sent to Eliza in 1817, giving her careful instructions on how to handle a cask of red wine that he was sending from Bordeaux for her use. It is old and good, he assured her, but when they transport it into the country, there should be hardly any sun because the sun will overheat the wine. Then he suggested how to handle it once it reached the mansion. As soon as it arrives in the country, have it placed on a pile of wood, and before decanting it, it will have to be clarified with eight egg whites, and the cask will have to be raised enough that a bottle can be placed beneath it in order that it can be decanted. Stephen's wife, Eliza, did not grow up drinking wine. She was born in dire poverty in Providence, Rhode Island, on the eve of the Revolutionary War. Her youth included stints in the workhouse and as an indentured servant. As a young woman, she moved to New York in search of better options. She worked briefly as an extra in the theater before marrying Stephen in 1804. Eliza proved to have an excellent head for business, in particular, for helping to manage the real estate that she and Stephen acquired. In 1826, she gave him a tart report on a house they owned on Liberty Street, just east of Broadway. I have given notice to those who are occupying it. It is in very bad condition. I mean, excessively dirty. And before I will be able to offer it for rent, I will have to paper and paint it. And without any other expense, I will make it look well. And there is no doubt that I will be able to obtain double the current rent. Stephen and Eliza bought the Morris's former home in 1810 to use as their country estate. Eliza took great pride in the garden and the vineyard they planted. In 1827, she described its appearance to Stephen, who was in France. The vines are in flower, and it looks like we will have many grapes. We have 600 vines, by the way. I have cleaned and arranged them carefully. It would give you great pleasure to see them. And as to the garden, you could not believe how beautiful it is. The area and avenue around the house are so well kept that it seems a true paradise. Stephen Jewell died in 1832, leaving Eliza a wealthy widow. 
Thirteen months later, she made a second marriage at the age of 58. Her second husband was 77-year-old Aaron Burr. The marriage made the newspapers across the nation. The groom had been the third vice president of the United States, but his reputation had been blighted nearly 30 years before after he mortally wounded Alexander Hamilton in a duel. Then he made matters worse with an ill-fated attempt to raise a private army to seize Spanish-owned lands in the South and Mexico. In 1835, a journalist wrote, No Christian or patriot can look on Aaron Burr without deep emotion. He excites feelings similar to what we feel when treading over the ashes of the illustrious dead. The soul thinks on the greatness that dwells in ruins, and however strongly it may disapprove the course to which he was hurried by his towering ambition and desperate fortunes, it cannot but regard him with mingled emotions of pity and admiration. Less portentously, a fellow lawyer described Aaron at the time of his marriage to Eliza as well-dressed, approachable, and witty. In a word, a cheerful, fine-looking, gentlemanly old man. Unmentioned was Aaron's chief liability as a husband. He was unable to keep money in his pockets. He began to run through the bride's fortune immediately, and as a result, Eliza filed for divorce a year after the marriage, winning her case in 1836. Eliza lived on in the mansion for nearly three more decades, carefully managing money and property. She was an early investor in land in Saratoga Springs, and she bought a summer home there when she was in her 70s. She took several trips to Europe as well, on the last occasion taking with her a great-niece and great-nephew that she had raised. A description was written about her in 1855 when she was 80 years old, a year after her return from the last of these voyages. Madame Jumel, the journalist wrote, from having mingled so much in the best kind of society, has all the courtly graces and blandness of manner which distinguished the maids of honor of the last century. To society and the world generally, she bears herself very haughtily, forbidding anything like approaches to familiarity. She is as much a despot in her own dominions as any monarch who sways a scepter. She likes her mode of living, has wealth enough, has seen the world, outlived the desires of life, and will consequently probably never again emerge from the quiet enclosure of her elegant residence. Indeed, she will not emerge again. She died at the age of 90 in 1865, so we must go to see her. She presides over the hallway of her former home from a grand portrait painted in Rome. The great-niece and great-nephew she raised are at her side. Do visit her. She always liked publicity. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcast at GothamCenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. 